who's an, who's an animal lover? So right now you're thinking, like, that's terrible. Like, making fun of animals like that, right? Um, a whole video of animal fails. Uh, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to talk to you for about maybe 30, 35 minutes, something like that. And, and about five minutes into it, you're going to be like, what does this have to do with the video that you showed us at the beginning? I promise if you'll hang with me at the end, I'll, um, I'll make sure that it makes some sense. We're about halfway through um, Esther. Today we're going to be in Esther 6. Um, normally what happens if this is your first time here, we're in this series called Brave and we're going through the book of Esther, which is a fantastic book. Love the book of Esther. Um, what we normally do is we take about five, ten minutes at the beginning, kind of recap what's been going on and what we've been learning. And today, not going to happen. We've just got too much to cover in Esther chapter 6. So what you have is a note sheet and you have this QR code. So if you're really tech savvy, you get out your device and you get like a QR reader and you scan that thing, it'll take you to our website. It's got all the, all the past sermons, videos, notes, the whole deal. Um, you can catch up on your own time. Um, last week, we finished up in Esther chapter 5. Um, let me just kind of remind you what happened at the end of that so that we can pick it right up in, in Esther 6. Um, so last week, Esther has a banquet, right? She throws this banquet for the king and for Haman, and they, all, they get there. She feeds them, because that's what nice women do. They feed their men, right? They feed them, and like, it's good food, and it's time to make the big ask, right? And when it's time to ask, she doesn't. She says, hey, I got an idea. Come back tomorrow, and we'll try it again. I'll throw you another banquet. And the king's up for that, like more food, fantastic, more, more beer, whatever, hanging out. God, come back. So he goes back. It's over. The banquet's over. Haman goes back to his, his wife and says, look, I loved it. The king asked me to come. He loves me. I'm on his side. But Mordecai, the Jew. How many Seinfeld fans do we have in the house? Seinfeld fans? Any Seinfeld fans? Okay, remember when Seinfeld goes, Newman, remember? Newman. That's how he's like, Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew. Like, he has, Haman has the best day ever. He's at a banquet with the king, a banquet with the queen. He's like arguably the second most important person in all of the city. And he's eating all the food. And he gets to go to another banquet. Best day ever. But Mordecai the Jew wouldn't bow. And so he goes home and tells his wife, like, I got, this, I got this co-worker dude, and he's driving me crazy. And I told you last week, if you're married to somebody, and you go home and tell them, I've got a problem, and their first answer is, kill them, you married the wrong person. But that was her answer. Oh, oh, Mordecai, the Jew's driving you crazy? Kill him. And then, like, Haman was sick and said, great idea. So he builds a 75-foot-high gallows. That's seven and a half stories high to hang Mordecai on. And it pleases him, and so the end of chapter 5. Now, we, we pick it up. That's where we're going to pick it up in chapter 6. And what I want you to see is this. There's two specific themes that you're going to see in this book. Um, how many of you like to swim? How many of you like, you ever like dipped in the shallow end, kind of get used to it, and then you start walking down to the deep end? How many of you are just like cannonball in the deep end, Right? So this morning, we're, um, we're going a little bit further towards the deep end, okay? Um, we're going to talk about some stuff, maybe some words you've never heard before. Hopefully it's good. Hopefully it makes sense. At the end, we'll try to wrap it all up, and I'll uh, give you a chance to respond, and it'll be fantastic. Are you ready? Here's the first theme. First theme, big word, the sovereignty of God. Um, sovereignty of God. So it's a phrase that we've heard. We've maybe said it. 
Um, we're not sure what it really means. If we're honest, we don't even know if we spelled it right. Like I was typing that this morning, and I'm, I'm looking for the red squiggly line, right? Because like that's how you know you misspelled a word, and there's not a red squiggly line, but I'm pretty sure, like, you know, there's words you look at, the longer you look at those words, the less they look right. That's it for me. Sovereignty, you're like, sovereign. Okay, let's go with it. So we hear that word. We don't really know what it means. So let's break down what does sovereignty really mean so we at least understand what we're talking about. Sovereignty simply means this, possessing supreme or ultimate power. It means that something or someone is in total control. Um, You've seen this at work in your family. How many of you in your family, there's somebody in your family, for me um, it was my dad, but there's somebody in your family and they love to have sovereign control of the remote, right? They're like, Give me the remote. It's my remote. They've got their name etched in the back of it. It's, it's like engraved. Like they have, my dad had a seat. Don't sit in dad's seat. Um, we didn't have remote controls when I was growing up. We had, it wasn't a Time Warner cable. I think it was Vision Cable. Is that right? Vision, Vision Cable. And so remember the boxes? Remember the cable boxes that set up on? Anybody remember this? And like you had to hit the, like we had three rows of selections. Like you click the button and it changes. So when my dad wanted to change the channel, he would do this from his chair, the throne. He would go, uh, Paul, I like to watch channel whatever, right? <laughs> I mean, go up, click it, and go back and sit down. He, he loved to have sovereign, and he wasn't a freak or nothing. He wasn't a control. He was just a dad, right? So like, don't touch my whatever, fill in the blank. You're the same way. You got people in your life, they like to express sovereign control. They always like to have control. So that's all it means. Sovereign simply means about God, that he's in total control. So then we've got to ask this question. Is the sovereignty of God in the Bible? Like, it sounds good, but is it in the Bible? Um, I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures. You can jot them down. We'll throw them up on the screen, too, just in case you don't have your Bibles with you. Um, First Chronicles. First Chronicles conveniently comes before Second Chronicles. It makes it a lot easier to find. What a tough crowd. Tough crowd this morning. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. This is writing about God. Here's what it says about God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. How many things? All things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. This is a picture of a sovereign God, right? You kind of hear that. Like, man, that's, that God's got it going on. Everything belongs to Him. Psalm 115.3. Psalm 115.3 says that God is in heaven and He does as He pleases. Now, depending on what kind of dad you had, you love that verse or hate that verse, right? Like, depending on what kind of parent you had. If you had a parent that was, like, could like, tell you what to do, make you do stuff all the time, like, you kind of read it and go, ooh, God's in heaven and does what he pleases? I don't know if I like that. He's sovereign. He has sovereign control. He can do as he pleases. And if that's the truth, then let's ask this question. If God can do as he pleases, what happens if God abuses his power? Have you ever had a a boss like that, like, abuse their power? It's good for them. Like, they do what pleases them, but it doesn't really please you, right? Is God like that? Like if he's in heaven doing as he pleases, what, does what he pleased to do, is it going to be good for me? Let's talk about that. Psalm 119.68. The longest psalm, longest chapter in the, in the whole Bible. Psalm 
That same God that sits in heaven and does as he pleases, this is what David wrote about that God. Verse 68, you are good, and what you do is good. We don't want anybody to have sovereign power over us if they're going to use the power to do wrong, right? I mean, you don't want to have a boss like that. We want, if they're going to have sovereign control, sovereign power, if we're going to give the title sovereign to anybody, we'd like to think that they would do good with the power. Like, how many times do we elect officials, right? Like, we elect people to political office, and like a week after they take office, every, like every collective person in the city is kind of like at home going, oh, God, what do we do, right? Like, why? What were we thinking? We put the wrong person in power. Is God like that? No. The Bible says clearly he's in heaven. He does as he pleases. The good news is that what he does is good because he's good. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are three of the Gospels. Um, all three of them record this, this instance where this man walked up to Jesus and said to Jesus, good teacher, right? And you're like, well, yes, Jesus, good teacher. And Jesus said this, don't call me good. Nobody's good but God. Nobody's good but the Father. We have a good Father, you were here a couple weeks ago, um, Chris and Angie Parker were here, they're leading worship, they did a song called Good, Good Father, like it's still stuck in my head, right, it sounds so country, I love it, you're a good, good father, it's who you are, it's great, right, it's a lot better than that, by the way, I'm sorry you had to hear that, he's a good father, he's not like some of the fathers that we've had, he's a good God, he's in heaven, sovereign God can do what he pleases, the good news for us is what he pleases to do is good. If anybody can be trusted with absolute sovereign power, it's probably God. So um, before we look at Esther 6 and just kind of see this theme of the sovereignty of God, let's just nail this down. The sovereignty of God means that God has always been in control. He is in control and he always will be in control. There will never be a, mo a moment in all of eternity where God says, I just need a break. I'm going to just set the remote down. I'm going to step off the throne. I'm going to go get a drink of water. I'm going to come back. He's never going to do that. He's never going to turn his back. He's always in control. If you're a parent and you've raised small children, then at some point in your life you have heard these words come out of your mouth. I only turn my back for a second. And in that, it's amazing what can happen in that second, isn't it? Like they find paint. And it goes on, not the wall, but like a car. They find something in their diaper, and it goes on the wall. And you walk in and go, I only turned my back for a second. Where did that come from? It came from his diaper, and it's now on the wall, right? If you're going to be a parent, just watch for this, right? Listen, God's not that way. We serve a sovereign God who's always in control. The junk in your life that's making you feel out of control, God's not in heaven going, didn't see that coming. He saw it. Now, we can debate about why he didn't stop it, but let's at least agree that he saw it. He's not, a, oh, oh, God, I had a plan for everybody in the world, but Paul screwed it up. Like, he's not doing that. There's comfort in that. He's a sovereign God. Some of us feel like maybe we missed... Um, the good Christian class, you ever struggle with that? Like, well, there's some class where good Christians go to it. Well, good Christians never cry. Good Christians never sin. Good Christians never question the sovereignty of an absolute powerful God. Yeah, whatever, right? I mean, good Christians wonder about that stuff. It's okay to look at your life and go, I don't understand this. It's not okay to look at your life and say, God can't handle this. 
So let me give you a real practical thing about sovereignty of God. It's almost impossible to see the sovereignty of God going forward, but it's really easy to see the sovereignty of God looking back. Okay? So we kind of go through life, like you're facing stuff right now that is way beyond your control, way beyond my control, and it's normal to look at that situation and say, okay, the preacher's talking about sovereignty of God, and he's, I'm pretty, he's on it. Like, I think he's quoting Scripture. I think this is true. I don't know how it's going to work out in my life. I'm okay with that. Give yourself a week, a month, a year, and look back at this moment, and you'll go, oh, I see it. That's where God was sovereign, okay? This is not to beat you up because you're going through stuff. I'm going through stuff. It's just simply to say, look, going forward, it's hard to see it. But it's so easy when you look back and see the hand of God, the sovereignty of God. And that's what we're going to see in Esther, in Esther chapter 6. The sovereignty of God, okay? Um, let's just pick it up. Verse 1. That night, what night was it? That night, the same night that they had the banquet and that Esther's kind of like this, this um. The drama's building, right? Like Esther wants to ask for something and she doesn't. And so he's like, come back tomorrow. That very night, he goes home. The king can't sleep. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Now, listen, this is not abnormal. We've talked a lot about um, King Xerxes. He's, he likes himself a lot. Do you know people that really like themselves a lot? Like they're always checking themselves out in the mirror. They're just like, dude, I look good. I look good, right? And you're just like, no, that's what you think, right? Um, So this was normal for kings. Kings would have these things called chronicles. And they would write down, it's like a history book, write down all the great things that the king did. And then every now and then, kings would love to have people bring the book in and read to them how great they are. Um, Wives, husbands, it's not going over well in your house, right? Your spouse is like, read to me about how brilliant I am. You're like, whatever, read to yourself because there's not even a book like that, right? The king's like, read to me. So he's reading this book of the Chronicles. They were just kind of all the great things that he had done. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guard the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. You'll have to go back. I think it's, the, it's in Esther um, chapter 3. Maybe it might be ch- chapter 2. But early in the book, we saw that these two guys, Bigthana and Teresh, they're rappers. Um, they were going to kill the king. Mordecai found out about it, told the king about it, saved the king's life, and they got that wrote down in the Chronicles. And so he's reading it, and there you go. The king says this, verse 5, verse 3, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. Now, that was not normal. Kings love to honor people who got their back. Because if a king honors the people that have their back, then the king gets to stay on the throne, right? Like we just get a lot of people around me that will protect me so so I'm safe and I'm secure. The king said, who's in the court? They heard something outside. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had erected for him. Anybody else kind of see where this is headed? Yeah, like the king's thinking Mordecai is amazing and Haman's coming to tell the king to kill Mordecai, right? But Haman doesn't know that. Mordecai doesn't know that. Who does know that? Sovereign God. Yeah. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. Verse 6, when Haman entered, the king asked, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? So let's just talk through sovereignty of God a little bit. Um, Let's talk through three ways that we see the sovereignty of God, just three spots right here. First is um, verse 1, the king can't sleep. 
Um, I don't know if you struggle with not sleeping or not. Um, we're not talk- I'm not going to say that insomnia is proof of the sovereignty of God, but I do want to tell you this. Sometimes, sometimes when we can't sleep, God's doing something. Now, if you're a brand new parent and you have a child who likes to sleep at night, I mean, cry at night, like in the middle of the night, and you wake up, you don't typically wake up and go, why am I awake? Well, you're awake because you had a baby right? And that baby likes to cry. So that's why you're awake. But when there's no reason to be awake at all, and you just suddenly like, you're, you're sound asleep, like you're, you're so out of it that you realize you've got like drool here, but you're not even moving to wipe it. You're just out. You're just like, this is great. And then boom, you're awake. Like there's a reason. There could be a reason that you're awake. I, I heard a story from a missionary one time. This missionary's over in Africa, like really warm part of Africa. And he's like, he had surgery, he had a body cast on. So he's in the hospital, right? Picture this. He's in the hospital, on the hospital bed, like propped up, body cast, can't move. Like, that's how you like scratch your face, right? You can't move. And the window's open because it's a really warm night. And as he's laying there, he looks over, he sees movement at the window. And he sees this line of ants, like really aggressive ants, come walking up into the window, down onto the floor. He watches them up onto the bed and then like coming towards his hand. And I don't know what you're thinking at that point. You can't move. So, you know, like, you're calling for a nurse. Or I'm calling for God. Like, ah, somebody save me. Screaming like a girl, whatever, right? And he watched these ants walking towards him. And then the ants U-turned and went right back out the way that they came. If you're a missionary and that happens, what's going in your next newsletter back home? Yeah, the ant story, right? So he's like writing the ant story, like, you won't believe this. I'm in a body cast, yada, yada, I see the ants. They're coming to bite me. They're going to get up in my cast. They U-turn and go back out. Crazy! Holla! And he gets this guy, one of his supporters, calls him up, and he's like, dude, I read about the ant story. Like, like what day was that again? Oh, it was whatever day it was. And what time was it? Oh, it was this time in Africa. Okay, just do the, that would have been what time in my, in my state? That, dude, you're not going to believe this. I woke up in the middle of the night on that exact night, and I started praying for you because I knew God told me to pray for you. And what time did you see the U-turn happen? And, like, they were, like, nailing it down. And all of a sudden, like, holy cow, like, that's when I prayed for you. Sovereignty of God. Next time you wake up in the middle of the night and there's absolutely no reason for you to be awake, just before you roll back over and go to sleep. Like, I wake up in the middle of the night because Wendy says, you're snoring, roll over, right? Not the sovereignty of God, just the desperation of a wife who wants to sleep well. She's like, shut up, roll over, I love you. If you wake up in the middle of the night, there's no reason to be awake. Look, before you go back to sleep, why don't you just say this, hey God, is there something I'm supposed to pray about? Can't sleep. On this night, Of all the nights to not be able to sleep, this night, the night between the banquets, the night when obviously a sovereign God is setting something up, he cannot sleep. What's the next evidence of God's sovereignty? Verse 2. They're reading this book, right? This huge book. It's 12 years. It's not like picking up the Reader's Digest, right? It's 12 years of King Xerxes' reign. At this point, he's been in the office for 12 years. There's 12 years of events recorded in the book of Chronicles. They're not thumbing through a content, table contents. They're not going through, like, the index at the back, like, looking up Mordecai, turn the page, whatever. They just pop the book open and start reading. And what do you know? They're reading this story on this night. Do you see the sovereignty of God? This is a God that we can trust. This is a God that's in control. 
third way that we see it, and I love, I just love how God works. I love this. As they finish reading about how great Mordecai is, footsteps out in the court. King's like, who's out there? It's Haman. King's thinking, that's great, because Haman's like, you know, second command. Let's get him in here. Let's bounce some ideas about how we can honor. He's thinking Mordecai. And Haman's coming to, to ask him to kill Mordecai. Like, you can't set this up any better than that. Sovereignty of God. You ever go to the mall, and um, it's a brand new mall. You don't know where you're supposed to go, so you find the mall directory, right? And the first thing you do is you find the big red dot, don't you? And the big red dot says, you are an idiot because you're lost. But no, they don't say that. They say, you are here, right? It's like, that's, that's what we do. I want you to get this. The sovereignty of God does not just tell you where you are. The sovereignty of God tells you how you got where you are. When you look back, you're like, I know I'm here. <laughs> so like, look, we are now tomorrow, right? Most people go, why am I here? Why is the red dot now tomorrow? Oh, that's right, I was born here. Why are my parents idiots? <laughs> How do I get out? It's not just that you're here. It's why are you here? The sovereignty of God says this. There's a reason where you are. Esther didn't just wake up one day as the queen and go, where am I? Oh, yeah, in the castle. Boom. She went, why am I here? How did I get here? How did I, Esther, a girl whose name means Myrtle, Myrtle, I got mocked in middle school because my name was Myrtle, and now I'm the queen. Why? How? What's God up to? The sovereignty of God answers all those questions. He has a reason for putting you where you are. We'll see a lot more examples of this as we go through the book. The last week of this series, we'll just t- talk about tons of ways that we see the sovereignty of God. Um, but let's just continue with Esther 6. Second theme that we find out. The king says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, this is um, Esther 6, verse 6. Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Now that answer right there reveals the second theme. The second theme is the pride of man. So we've got the sovereignty of God. God's in control. He's in total control. He's a good God. He's in heaven. He does as he pleases. What he pleases to do is good. It's good for us. We can trust him. We've got the sovereignty of God, and then we've got the pride of man. Let me just say this, okay? When somebody says to you, how should we honor? When honor comes up and the first name that pops in your head is your name, there's a problem with pride. If our church says, we want to honor our city, we want to honor our city and show them the love of Jesus, and the first thing you think is, well, maybe you should honor me, you got a problem with pride. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to be honored. I'm not saying there's not real circumstances behind that statement. I'm just saying when, when we fill the gap with our name, there's a problem with pride, and that's where Haman is. The king's like, hey, what should we do for somebody that I want to honor? And when Haman's thinking there's nobody on the face of the earth that the king could ever want to honor more than me. <laughs> like, do you know people who are that full of themselves? Don't you want to punch them? Like, God, just give us a break, dude. Like, you're not all that in a bag of chips, even when that was a big thing to say. Right? You're not. This is Haman. Full of pride. I don't want to just throw him under the bus. Man, this is something we've got to challenge ourselves with. We tend to do this. 
we tend to think, of course, like God's waiting on me. Who else could God ever want to honor like, like me? Man, it, pride. Pride is insidious. It's not just a Haman struggle. I'm not going to let you take that out and go, well, this is a story about Esther, and it's a story about Mordecai, and it's a story about Haman. And Haman was a very bad man, but that was Haman. Now, that's us. That, I, I wish I didn't relate to Haman, but I relate to Haman. Right? Like, I, I get that. Pride. Let's talk about pride. Some effects of pride. I'll put the verses up there for you. Um, just some of the effects that pride can have in our lives. Um, Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, 12. Says this, those who are pure in, your, in their own eyes, those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth. Now we picked it up mid-sentence, but he's talking about people who are pure in their own eyes and yet are filthy. This is what pride does, right? Pride, it blinds us. Like we can't even see who we really are. Do you know people that like, this is summertime, so we're all going to go to the beach. And that means if you're going to go to the beach, at some point you're going to be on the beach and you're going to see what somebody else is wearing and you're going to say this to the people that you're with. What were they thinking? Like, do they not have mirrors in their home? Did they not walk past 10-car windows on the way to the beach before they unveiled that? And here's the answer. you got to understand this, okay? This is how insidious pride is, how much it blinds us. They did look in a mirror, but they didn't see what you see. They saw the preferred image of themselves. Pride is so bad that in your life right now, sitting right here at the gathering on a Sunday morning, as I'm preaching about pride, you will say this, I'm so glad so-and-so was here today. They really needed to hear this message. And you'll believe it. Because pride is that insidious. Like we suddenly believe that just, I'm, I've been trying to get my husband to come to church. And you wouldn't say that a lot, but thank you, Jesus, he came today while Paul's talking about what a jerk he is. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. It's, it's, it blinds us. We can't even see who we really are. Luke 18. You, again, you can just jot these verses down. They're up on the screen. You can see them. Luke 18. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Jesus is telling a parable, and he said this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. You know anybody like that? Looks down on everybody else? Do you know anybody like that? Don't you love those people? They're so adorable. To, to the, some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or this tax collector. Calls them out. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, this is, I want you to get this, okay? What does pride do? It blinds us, but pride also makes ourselves the standard. You see that? It makes us the standard. If you could be more like me, yeah, that's what we need. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not what we need, right? It makes us the standard. He said this, I'm so glad I'm not like, but what he's really saying is, God, I wish they were like me. 
I fast. I tithe. I wear a dress. Well, it wasn't really called a dress back then, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, they should be more like me. I am the standard. This is why it's so crazy how hypocritical we are, isn't it? Like, somebody else does something and you laugh at them, but then if you do the same thing, it's okay, right? My favorite example is this. If you go walking down the sidewalk and you trip, you'll say, what idiot built this sidewalk? But if somebody else walks down the sidewalk and trips, you're like, look at that idiot tripping on the sidewalk, right? Like pride, man. It makes us the standard. You should be more like me. It, it intoxicates us. Romans 12.3. Romans 12.3 says this, that we should, we should think of ourselves with sober judgment. So um, I, I think sober means like not drunk, right? So we should think of ourselves with sober judgment. We should not be intoxicated with pride. James 4.6 says that pride sets God against us. Um, I've never been to court Never been to court, um, but James 4, 6 always makes me think of court because it says that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So think this through, right? You're going to court, so you're already nervous because there's going to be like somebody sitting up there with the bench, on the bench. They're wearing a robe. They've got a gavel. They're kind of holding your, hand, your life in their hands, and you're sitting there. So if, if I'm going to court, here's my prayer. Oh, God, give me the best lawyer ever. That's one prayer. Second prayer, oh, God. Give them the worst lawyer ever, right? Like, let me have the best. Give them the worst so that it can work out. Maybe it's their first case, and they just totally screw it up, and I'll be set free, whatever. Imagine this. You walk into the courtroom. You sit down, and you're hanging out with your defense attorney, and you look over and see the prosecutor, and the prosecutor in your case is the God of the universe. Like, can we agree that you're screwed? Like it's over. James 4, 6 says this. Man, when we're prideful, when we have pride in our lives, God opposes the proud. He's not just a little miffed about it. He's not just like, oh, that's just a weakness in their life. We'll work it out. Something about pride opposes us to God. I don't want to be here with God. But that's what pride does. Psalm 10, 4 says that it leaves no room for God. Psalm 10.4 actually says this, that prideful people have no room for God in their thoughts. Like, in every thought, from the minute they wake up till the minute they go to bed, and then the next day they wake up, and on and on and on and on, that they have no room for God in their thoughts. Pride just pushes God out. It squeezes God out. 1 Timothy 6.4. First Timothy 6, 4 says that pride divides us. And it doesn't actually say pride divides us. So I want to make sure I read this to you so you, you know where I'm coming from. Verse 3 says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, verse 4, he is conceited, which means he's full of pride, and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicion. It says in verse 5, there's constant friction between men of corrupt mind. Listen, here's what it's saying. When we get full of pride, when we're conceited, it, lean, it, it tends to take us to conversations that do nothing but bring up strife and envy. It just divides us. Like pride divides us. Because I'm right. No, I'm right. Well, let's talk about it. 
Wolfpack, Tar Heel, Wolfpack, Tar Heel, Blue Devil, right? I mean, that's like, what? It divides us. That's what pride does. Pride deceives us. Jeremiah 49, 16. Jeremiah 49, 16 says that our hearts are wicked and deceitful. It even goes on to say, who can understand them? The deceitfulness of pride is why you still think, I'm talking to the people next to you right now. You're still like, please God, let them hear, right? He's talking to them. And here's the last thing I want you to get about pride. Pride causes us to overvalue ourselves and undervalue others. It overvalues ourselves and it undervalues others. That's what we find at the end of this chapter 6. Let me read it to you. When the king asked Haman, what should we do for the one that I want to honor? And Haman thought, well, there's nobody else that the king would want to honor but me. Verse 7, so he answered the king. This is what he said. For the man, me, the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes and let them robe the man, me, the king delights to honor and lead him, me, on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, me, this is what is done for the man, me, the king delights to honor. That's how Haman read that. That's how he said that. Because he overvalues himself. Oh, you're talking about me. I'm fantastic and here's what you should do for me. But if the king had turned to him and said, hey, I want to honor Mordecai, what do you think we should do for Mordecai? What would he have said? I think maybe we've done enough for Mordecai. No, I've got an idea. We should exalt Mordecai. I've got a 75-foot-high gallows. We can hang him high for all the world to see, right? Pride makes us overvalue ourselves and undervalue others. So here's how we need to wrap this up. Listen. There's these two themes, sovereignty of God and pride of man. And what you've got to know is these two cannot coexist. They cannot coexist. God is always in control, and we always want to be in control. And they cannot go together. They cannot go together. The good news is this. We have time to learn from Haman's mistake. Here's how it ends with Haman in this chapter. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, verse 10. Get the robe and the horse and do just like you suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Don't neglect anything that you've recommended. Everything you said, make sure you do it. I've got people watching you. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets. So it's like kind of like this parade, and it ends at this, the, the most busy part of the city. Everybody is there. All the family members that know how much Mordecai hates Haman How much Haman hates Mordecai. They're there. They're hearing him. And they're hearing Haman say this. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. I love that. Mordecai is honored. It's his best day ever. And how does he wrap it up? He just goes back to work. Mordecai is the people that win the lottery but don't quit their job. Right? We love those people. Especially if they're relatives. Whew. Crowd's not gotten any better at all. I love you. You're fantastic. Obviously, you're in some kind of coma where you need to eat. I need to hurry. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief, totally humiliated. And he told Joresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that happened to him. Listen, this is the part you've got to get, okay? His advisors and his wife said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, 
You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. If you're Haman, this is one day removed from another conversation you had with these exact same people who knew that Mordecai was a Jew, and their, their comment to you was, hey, I know how you can get rid of him. Kill him. And now that he wants to kill him, he's taken, uh, man, don't shake your head too much on this, okay? He listened to his wife. He did what she said, and now it's going to bite him. And now she's going, dude, what are you doing? Like, you can't mess with him. Like, you'll never win. It'll never work. <laughs> okay, 24 hours earlier, we had this exact same conversation. Where were you then? Like, is this your body double? What's going on here, right? Like, why are you telling me this now? You can't win. You can't win. Listen, here's your big idea today. I want you to get this, okay? Our greatest failure is fighting the God who always succeeds. Our greatest failure is fighting the God who always succeeds. I want you to see, like, the insanity of this. Sovereign God sits on his throne in heaven and does as he pleases. And the pride of man wants to fight that. Why? Why fight that? Pride sees God's power but won't bow. Humility bows and sees God's power. This is where we are today, right? Like, will we bow to a sovereign God? How do we, how do we land this, this message? I've been wondering this all, like, how do you land this, right? So here's what we've got to do. We've got to give ourselves some time this morning to, to respond to God's sovereignty, okay? So we're going to, Phil's going to come, he's going to play a little bit. We're going to probably sing some more of that surrender song. And while he's coming, let me just, let me just kind of help you, like, see where this fits in your life. I want you just to close your eyes, and let me just talk to you for just a few minutes, and then we'll, I'll read a scripture, and we'll, we'll wrap up. We've got to respond, this is not one of those messages that you listen to and go, oh, that was really good. Like, Paul had a lot of really tweetable moments there. This has got to be one of those, those messages where, like, you really take to heart, like, what we're talking about, right? Like, you really take this to heart. God's sovereign, and I'm, and I'm not, and I want to be, and I relate to Haman, and I don't, I don't want to relate to Haman anymore. Like, my pride has gotten me in trouble. So here's, here's how this could break down in our lives. For some of us, you're not following Jesus. Like, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. If you died right now, you walk out, not this going to happen. If you walked out, just past that orange wall, took one, one wrong step, stepped in the road, got hit by a car, died, you're not going to heaven. You've not trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've tried to do it your own way, and it's not worked. Listen, your response this morning to the sovereignty of God is to repent. We started the whole service with a baptism. A baptism is a way of symbolizing, look, I tried it my own way, and I can't do that. I've got to trust what Jesus did, and I'm going to be buried in this water, and I'm going to come out a new person. I'm going to come up clean. That's what it means. And some of you, this is what you need to do this morning. I don't care how long you've been coming here. If you've never made that a decision, you've got to make a choice to follow Jesus. Some of us here have done that. I mean, you're... No doubt, like, I don't want to get hit by a car, but if I did and I died, I know I'm going to go to heaven. But here's the reality. You're fighting against God in some areas of your life. We're, we're doing this with God. We are proud in some areas of our lives, and we're not submitting and surrendering that to God.
oh, I will find a spouse. And I will not take God's opinion on it. Because he'll make me go to church and meet some wussy dude. I will find my own spouse. And it's gotten you to the bar. And it's gotten you to bad places. And you have met people who should never have been met. And you're in trouble now. Do you love Jesus? Sure. But have you done this with God in that area? Absolutely. I will do what I want. I will say what I want. That's where I want. I want to bring you to that place, okay? I'm talking about total surrender. While your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, I'm going to read to you just the beginning of Psalm 2. Just listen to what it says. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And he says this, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Listen, do you hear the sovereignty of God in those words? Your greatest failure is fighting the God who always succeeds. We have, we started this whole message. Here's where we tie it all together. We started this by looking at videos of animals failing, right? We're chuckling. That's really funny. Look at that bulldog covered in sand. It's hilarious. Ha ha. But here's the thing. Our culture has made failure an art form. Like if you fail at the right time and somebody gets the right picture, the right video, throw a meme on that puppy and put up on the internet and you can be famous. We have made failing an art form. But we cannot afford to fail in this. We cannot afford for our greatest failure to be fighting against a God who, who always succeeds. And this morning, if you will simply bow to God, the flip side of that big idea becomes your reality. Not only is our greatest failure fighting the God who always succeeds, but our greatest success comes from uniting with the God who never fails. Like, this is not even about you and me. This is about being on the right side of the power of God, isn't it? Just before we pray, when I was youth pastor, my favorite kids were the ones whose favorite team changed depending on who won the championship. That's always fun, isn't it? Who's your favorite team? Chicago Bulls. How about this year? Lakers. How about the Hornets? Never, right? <laughs> You know, like, whoever won last year, that's my favorite team. And I used to think that was so silly, but think about it. Don't you always want to be with a winner? Don't you always want to be aligned with the people who were on the top and champions? The good thing is when you, you, you unite with God and His power, you don't have to change teams. He always wins. And I want you to be on the right side of that power.